This podcast is sponsored by GoGo, the leader in in-flight connectivity and wireless entertainment. Our superior technologies, best-in-class service, and global reach help planes fly smarter. Our partners perform better, and their passengers travel happier. Learn more at gogoair.com forward slash airline. Seth, I'm in a quandary. What's wrong? Delta Airlines is what's wrong. They're making our jobs boring. Each quarter, they make gobs of money, and gone are the days of spilled red ink and bankruptcy. Now we get to talk about dividends, share buybacks, profit sharing, revenue premiums, and so on. It's dull. It's like reporting on Procter & Gamble. Delta announced fourth quarter results on Tuesday. Pre-tax income was $1.45 billion. For the year, it was $5.9 billion, a record not just for Delta, but for the entire history of the global airline industry. David, post-tax was $4.5 billion. That, too, a record for, for the global airline industry. Adjusted net income for the quarter was $926 million, up 51% compared to the fourth quarter of 2014. And our favorite measurement, operating margin, was a handsome 17%, a significant improvement over the 13% posted in Q4 2014. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President here at Airline Weekly. And I'm Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner at Airline Weekly. We're going to unpack Delta's earnings report. Maybe we can find something interesting in there to talk about. Plus, we'll talk about Air France feeling good, Latam's ambitions, and ultra-low-cost carriers in Canada. It's all coming up on the Airline Weekly Lounge. joining us. So Delta posted a 17% operating margin. And again, as we've seen with Delta and the other U.S. airlines recently, the story is driven largely by cheap fuel amid a relatively good economy, something that almost never happens. Yeah, it's really been since the late 1990s that we haven't seen that the last time fuel was cheap, uh, the economy was bad, that was in 2009. And then, of course, uh, throughout most of the last decade, fuel was rather expensive. Uh, even at points when the economy was still holding on before the recession. Delta paid $1.85 per gallon in the fourth quarter. That's actually up from $1.80 in the third quarter. But what really interested me is they are forecasting their fuel price to be around $1.25 next quarter. They have more good earnings reports to come, don't they? Yeah, I mean, that's that's just a massive differential there. Uh, you know, and, and that, of course, is because they're, their fuel hedges have been unwinding, and then they, they actually went ahead and unwound some of them early, uh, spent some money doing that. So so that's why going forward, even if fuel prices in terms of the spot prices, uh, you know, the prices that you pay today if you're unhedged only go down modestly. And already we're at a point here where, you know, we're, we're looking to be lower than they were last quarter. Uh, you know, Delta still gets somewhat of a tailwind just for the fact that they don't have those bad hedges. Whereas American, for example, uh, you know, which has which has done very, very well by being unhedged on the way down precisely because they're unhedged. You know, they don't get any further benefit unless fuel prices uh, continue going down. But but they, too, like everybody else, will get a benefit at least this quarter and going forward compared to last year, simply because those spot fuel prices are lower now than they were. OK. Meanwhile, revenue was is dropping. Uh, revenue was down two percent in the fourth quarter and Delta is forecasting a two and a half to four and a half percent drop this quarter. We've talked about it before, how revenues are declining, but costs are declining faster. Judging from Delta's report, how is the so-called race to the bottom going? 
Well, the costs are winning, you know, and that's good. I mean, fuel prices are, are still falling more rapidly than revenues. And Delta, uh, on their call discussing the earnings, uh, you know, talked about that. Uh, you know, they, they were, uh, I mean, look, they conceded that they had hoped to get their hands around the revenue part sooner. You know, they'd hoped that unit revenues would stop declining by the end of the year. That hasn't happened. But on the other hand, fuel prices have continued declining more rapidly than they or anybody else thought. And, uh, you know, of course, what matters most in the end uh, is when you add it all up, are you making more money now than you were, than you were in the past? And, and the answer is that, yes, they are, because the fuel prices are so much dramatically lower than uh, than, than they forecast that they're, they're fine with the revenue declines. But, you know, to be clear, unless fuel prices continue declining at the same rate, and I mean, at a certain point, it has to level off because, well, I mean, it can't go below zero, right? So, so uh, you know, at some point, they'd have to get their hands around the uh, the revenue situation. But, uh, but, but they're already starting to, and you know, it, just as as you look at schedules going forward, you know, whereas airlines has kind of ramped up the growth uh, in, in the past few quarters and going into the early part of this year, um, you know, you, you could you could envision the balance being okay. But but it's certainly something that everybody, you know, in terms of the the investor community is looking at. They they want to see these airlines turn the corner uh, on those uh, on those unit revenue declines. Uh, you know, that very modest fair hike last week was, was a good sign, uh, you know, in, in that regard from an airline perspective. But uh, investors want to see more because, you know, although there's a lot of pessimism in oil markets right now, and, you know, people talking about oil going to $20 a barrel, who knows? Uh, obviously, there's no assurance of that. And Delta's revenue is a little more resilient than its counterparts, American and United. Will we see, will that help? Delta gain some separation on American in the quarters ahead. Well, it, well, it could. Yeah, I mean, you know, American, of course, has the situation in in, in the Dallas Fort Worth metroplex, where you know Southwest, of course, is, is, as we've talked about in other uh, podcasts, and, and I think as most people know, that has grown very rapidly uh, into a lot of markets that American once had more to itself. Uh, from from nearby Dallas Love Field and uh, you know United too, uh, its unit revenues uh, as far as we can tell we'll see you know, going forward here as, as those two airlines report earnings but yeah United also looks to be in a worse spot you, Delta uh, you know if you just kind of look at everybody's guidance and traffic reports and so forth going into all this uh, during earnings season looked the best positioned of, of those airlines. American, of course, still does have those tailwinds, you know, the fact that they have no fuel hedges. So on the on the fuel cost, the fuel cost part will be best for them, uh, at least for a little while here. Uh, so, so, yeah, the way it lines up is very good for Delta. But we see, uh, you know, Frontier expanding rapidly in, in Atlanta, you know, just all kinds of other dynamics going on. You know, the, the, where where you could see Atlanta, for example, even more under siege than it has been you know, if, if the growth of the ultra ultra low cost carriers shifts even more there uh, and and away from other places, so so the short answer to your question is yes, they're better positioned for the moment, but you know that that can change. We've talked about how Delta is charting new territory in operational performance. Do you have any feel for how much that's affecting the bottom line? Well, look, it's it's good on on the cost side and the revenues. Uh, yeah, I think they said they had you know 161 days in 2015 without a single mainline cancellation for any reason anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, I, I mean that that's that's just unheard of. And uh, yeah, so so number one, you know, when you're unreliable, um, that's expensive because uh, you know you have to reposition planes and crews, and you have to you know, reaccommodate inconvenienced passengers and so forth. So uh, just just on the cost side, you save by being reliable. 
And on the revenue side, you get a premium for it. You know, Delta says that they're getting a premium in the high single digits. I want to say they said 9%, um, you know, just sort of standardized for everything, just, just based on what, what they're delivering in terms of the, uh, the product and service, you know, the, with an airline that has a revenue like like theirs, uh, you know, you do the math, and and that would suggest that 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 yes, that it, that that it's having a, a significant impact, and, and that um, you know there's room for you know especially United American to to make up some ground if they too can turn the corner uh, on reliability. But but uh, you know right now Delta is certainly in a class uh, by itself when it, when it comes to those kinds of statistics. You know the punctuality, the the lost bag rates, customer complaints, they're they're doing very very well. I want to go back to revenue for a minute. Uh, Seth, you literally wrote the book on Delta, and that makes you now a foremost authority. <laughs> so people people really want to know what you find. Uh, uh, they want to hear your answers to these questions. And going back to revenue, uh, you mentioned uh, American and Dallas. They're in a battleground. Um, United, is, of course, is in a battleground in Chicago. Uh, but so is Delta. I mean, they have Seattle. They have, they're in competitive markets like Los Angeles, New York. Is it... Uh, what makes them so special? Is it they're sheltered in Atlanta? Yeah, well, the, the difference between Delta and the others, first of all, is that the other two that you mentioned don't have one hub that is as important as Atlanta is to Delta. I mean, for Delta, Atlanta's roughly half the airline. So as Atlanta goes, so goes Delta. And although certainly there's all kinds of competition there, uh, you know, from the ultra low cost carriers, especially uh, you know, Spirit and Frontier have, have expanded there. In terms of corporate traffic, it is a less competitive market than it once was. Airtran uh, was was extraordinarily competitive against Delta, a very low cost carrier that did chase corporate traffic, uh, you know, much more so than these ULCCs. And um, you know, Southwest bought it, had high hopes for Atlanta, and, and basically that just didn't work out. You know, it, it, they have actually funded a lot of their buildup at Dallas by pulling down Atlanta, and, and to be clear, other markets as well. So, so, you know, Delta has the corporate travel base there at the busiest airport in the world, mostly to itself. So it, it, it's not that it doesn't have you know, competitive battlegrounds. It most certainly does, you know, at the places, especially you mentioned, uh, you know, Seattle is, is uh, you know, clearly going to be a challenge for Delta for a long time. Los Angeles, uh, you know, just just a uh, really a free for all. Uh, New York, it has a very good position, but still a very competitive market. But you just add all that up, and it's just not as important to Delta as uh, you know what American might be dealing with in Dallas, Chicago, and elsewhere, for example. And um, and, and so when when Atlanta is going well for Delta, Delta is doing well as an airline. That's exactly what's happening. Okay, let's zip around the globe. Moving to Europe, looking at one of Delta's key partners, Air France KLM, they appear to be feeling fairly bullish. Uh, Despite last year's strikes, a vicious terrorist attack, and a lousy first quarter, the airline is now raising its growth plan for 2017 to 2020. Things are looking pretty good for Air France KLM right now. Should they be bullish? Well... Yeah, I, I mean, look, to be able to to put some of that behind them and and uh, you know be doing all right is is good news. Um, I think though we also have to sort of distinguish between bullishness and frankly labor negotiations, which is what some of this is. Uh, so you know, the, some some of that growth is contingent upon uh, more labor concessions that they haven't yet gotten. Uh, and so you know now they're doing it more with carrot than stick. They're saying, look, we're going to do all these great things. We we just need to agree to this, uh, you know, sign on this little line right here. Uh, and basically what they want are some of the same kinds of concessions 
that KLM got, the Dutch side of the company got from its workers. And, um, you know, it may be that the Air France workers are, are now ready for that um, because, you know, they want growth, too. Obviously, that's that provides opportunities for employees. Uh, and, and, and Air France has said, look, we're, we're not going to go to you know, inv involuntary layoffs and so forth. So they're just they're, they're kind of trying to play nicer with the employees. Um, but the growth is still very much contingent on that. And uh, and, and look, if, if they get those productivity employments, uh, improvements rather, uh, then you know obviously it makes all kinds of things viable that are not viable with with a less productive workforce. So um, you know they they uh, I mean it's partly semantics, right? Um, but you know but but sure they can be bullish as long as they as long as they get those so far elusive uh, concessions that they need from from their work groups. And they are enjoying cheap fuel. In South America, LATAM, the most powerful airline in that region, could be getting more powerful as it seeks joint ventures with American and IAG. If this comes to pass, and it's certainly not settled, uh, how much would it help LATAM's positioning? Oh, it would help tremendously. Uh, you know, I, I mean, look, they're not paving new highways here in terms of the concept. Uh, these joint ventures have worked very well elsewhere in the world for both American and IAG. So, so that in itself is helpful that we're dealing with airlines that are very experienced at, at running these kinds of joint ventures. Um, and there's every reason to think that they would help Latam, particularly because of, of what's happening in, in, in many of its core markets. Uh, and, and that, by the way, in turn, uh, you, you, know, you mentioned, look, it's no sure thing uh, you know, in terms of regulatory approvals, and it's going to get a lot of regulatory scrutiny, the timing could actually help, uh, you know, because a few years ago when they were just sort of a global profit champion, uh, they could have been seen as looking to further dominate uh, their their region and, and uh, many of these markets, whereas now they can legitimately say, look, things aren't what they once were. And, and you know, we need this this uh, to get back on our footing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's uh, got it's hard to think of uh, one of these kinds of joint ventures that hasn't worked out to one degree or another, you know, even though some are better than others. Uh, and and uh, there's every reason to think it'll be very good for them and very good for uh, for both. IAG and, and American. Uh, one thing interesting, uh, you know, if you look at the countries that are covered, it, it, it's a bit different for each of the joint ventures. Um, and although they didn't explain it, presumably that's because of regulatory uh, issues in different markets and, and just the fact that certain markets you know, matter more uh, in, in, in certain places than others as far as Europe vis-a-vis -vis North America. But, uh, you know, Argentina is is not covered by the proposed joint venture with American. It's obviously a giant market uh, where LAN has a carrier, not LAN now LATAM, but it was long a LAN branded carrier there. Uh, you know, and presumably that's because of regulatory issues. Uh, you know, Argentina, long a rather protectionist market, for, you know, a protector of its its uh, nationalized local airline, Aerolíneas Argentinas, but now. There's a new government there, a, you know, a more pro-business government, and uh, liberalization in the airline world uh, could be forthcoming. And, and so that's one to watch because it, it's a very big market for air travel between Argentina and the U.S., although you know not as large as it could be simply because of everything that's gone wrong in that country for a long time. And uh, you know, if, in fact, they do liberalize that market, among other impacts that could be helpful for the airline industry, uh, you know, certainly one thing that 
you could imagine happening is Argentina at some point uh, becoming a part of that joint venture. And as I mentioned, it's already a part of the proposed joint venture uh, to Europe with IAG. And what would the joint ventures mean to IAG and American? How significant? Oh, they'd be very significant. I mean, look, uh, relatively speaking, less significant than they would be to Latam simply because, uh, uh, you know, American, scale. Yeah, yeah, American and IAG are the bigger airlines. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for, for Latam, uh, you know, we're talking about virtually its entire long haul uh, business here. Uh, you know, whereas uh, for, well, for IAG and American, look, American, this would, you know, they've got the one with, uh, Japan Airlines, they've got Qantas, obviously the one with uh, with IAG itself. Um, you know, so so uh, so yeah, it would be more transformative uh, for for Latam simply because of of uh, of its uh, relative size. Um, but no, it would be very positive. Uh, and everything I said about the the South American market is true as well for those airlines. I mean, if you look at American, uh, you know that that's another thing we were talking earlier about the. You know, difference between between uh, you know Delta's revenue situation and American and United. Well, you know one thing is that American has all that exposure to Latin America, which for so long was uh, was a major strength, uh, you know, a major asset that Latin American network. Uh, you know, now it's become I wouldn't quite say a liability, but I mean, you know, it, it's certainly not producing the kinds of outsized profits that it once did. Uh, you know, a market like Brazil is 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 very challenging. Uh, American just wrote off big losses in Venezuela uh, because it couldn't get the currency out of the country. So, uh, you know, for, for, for American too, that's, that's, um, uh, this could be very helpful. And for IAG, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's the biggest of the European airlines to Latin America uh, because of Iberia, especially. Um, and, uh, you know, it too, with those ultra long haul flights, uh, you know, clearly feeling it with what's going on in the region. And, and so, yeah, it, it, it would be very happy to have this. Uh, but Latam, the biggest beneficiary. All right. Let's move northward. WestJet, which is the reigning low-cost carrier in Canada, says it's not going to do things like charging for carry-ons or charging to print boarding passes in order to compete with the new low, ultra-low-cost carrier, New Leaf. Assuming it ever launches, how much should WestJet and Air Canada, for that matter, be concerned about New Leaf? Well, they, they should be compare, uh, concerned because it's it's new capacity in, in their markets. Um, you know, obviously, New, new Leaf is not going to compete for all the same kinds of customers. Um, but, you know, we've seen it in the U.S. where, where uh, I mean, you and I have discussed it on, on other podcasts where, um, you know, for a long time, uh, an airline like American felt it could I didn't have to worry too much about, you know, Spirit competing for the same passenger base. But as you've had capacity growth in general, they find themselves bumping up against each other and competing for the same kinds of customers. And, um, and, and you know, that's what you could get in Canada. So, so uh, you know, if all of a sudden what has been a uh, kind of a comfortable duopoly in most markets, you know, plus add in Porter and some of the Eastern markets, it, uh, you know, if all of a sudden that becomes, you know, a multi-way battle against New Leaf and, uh, you know, Jetlines eventually and others, um, then, then yeah, that, that'll have a, an impact uh, because, yeah, it, it'll, it'll just be more capacity in those markets, even if it's a different kind of capacity. In the end, it's supply and demand economics. And, uh, you know, if, if supply starts to outstrip demand, uh, the, the other airlines will feel it. Are there any special conditions in Canada that would make the ultra LCC model more or less potent there? There are different conditions. I'm not sure exactly how, how it nets out. Uh, you know, one thing is that the prevailing airfares are kind of high. 
Uh, so that would tell you that that uh, ULCCs would have room to come in uh, and you know price the product in a way where it would be rather attractive and, and lure some people aboard. On the other hand, uh, you know part of the reason uh, fares are high is just because of taxes and fees that everybody's going to have to pay. Uh, so when so much of that is baked into the ticket price, uh, airlines actually lose some ability to to uh, you know distinguish on price because um, that that's kind of a great equalizer. So. Um, you know, it's it's it, it's a sizable market that you know on the surface should be able to support another airline. Um, you know, you have Air Canada and WestJet doing rather well right now. That would tell you that there's there's you know there's room for somebody else to come in, perhaps. But uh, yeah, what whether whether uh, the, the the greater force ends up being just the fact that because of the taxes and fees, you know, you you just can't offer those you know, $15 airfares that you'll sometimes see uh, in the U.S. from some of these ULCCs, uh, you know, we'll have to see if that's a, a significant impediment. Yeah, I could imagine taxes uh, just making it harder to stimulate demand. I mean, you can't get the price down low enough to, you know, draw people in, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I have a, another question very similar to that one, uh, maybe the other side of a coin. Is a cheap fuel environment a good time to launch an LC, ULCC? Well, there too, you have uh, you have that double-edged sword. Um, if you asked me that question a year ago, I would have said absolutely, because you know one thing we know is that, uh, and this is something else we've covered at other times, but uh, but you know very very relevant here. We we know that when fuel is cheap, the non-fuel costs, which are the ones that tend to vary by uh, you know the kind of business model and so forth, and, and the costs where if you're very efficient, you have a big advantage. Those matter more. You know, we're getting back into into a situation here where you know don't look now, but but uh, but labor at some airlines is again going to be the number one uh, cost rather than fuel. After all those years where fuel was you know, it almost become a given that fuel was the uh, was the top cost. So so yeah. In a cheap fuel environment, those other costs mattering more means that the that the airline uh, that can distinguish itself in those in, in those ways by being you know very efficient on the ground and so forth can have a bigger cost advantage. When I say cost advantage, I'm talking about the production cost of the airline, the cost of carrying passengers. On the other hand, what we've seen, and this was kind of the the more difficult to predict outcome of of cheap fuel, uh, is what we were talking about just a moment ago, and we've talked about it other times, which is where the ULCCs just have a harder time distinguishing themselves on price because when prevailing airfares start to fall, you know, the ULCC that at another moment in time might have been able to price its product, you know, hundreds of dollars uh, less than the prevailing airfares can't do that if the prevailing airfares are no longer hundreds of dollars. Uh, so, so, you know, the lesson from America so far uh, for Canada is that if anything, uh, it, it could be tougher because of that. You know, I've noticed since we started this podcast that we can't seem to stop talking about ultra low cost carriers. <laughs> they just seem to be the newsmakers. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, look, that, that's where the growth is. Um, I mean, if if we were doing a podcast in the 1980s and 1990s, well, I guess first of all, we'd, we'd be rich now because we would have been very, very prescient. Uh, about uh, technology that hadn't yet been invented, but uh, we we would also you know we would have been talking about Southwest. And later, you know, Ryanair, EasyJet, and so forth, obviously, uh, AirAsia, and so forth. Well, look, it, it's, uh, you know, especially in the U.S. now, let's say, you have this market where in recent years, not a lot of growth, even from an airline like Southwest. But 
these are these airlines are the new Southwest. Uh, you know, and, and, and we you know, we see it around the world. Um, you know, they're the growth airlines. They're the disruptors. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah, so no surprise that, uh, you know, when you have somebody who's coming in with a very different kind of product offering, uh, you know, something that I, you know, I, I think draws a lot of attention just because of, you know, of the way they run their businesses and the things they charge for and all that sort of stuff that a lot of people don't like. But on the other hand, you have people in markets who say, yeah, you know what, I can go visit grandma now and I couldn't afford it in the past because of these airlines. So, um, you know, they're, they're in, in that regard, you know, making travel affordable for a lot of people and they're simply growing rapidly and, and uh, in some ways disrupting an industry. You know what I got from that answer? What's that? In just 20 years, we'll get rich from this podcast. Oh, oh is, is, is that what I said? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll leave it right there. Seth, thanks for the insights. By the way, Delta's awesome earnings report this week was really a decade in the making. Seth Kaplan and our colleague Jay Shabbat have chronicled it in the book Glory Lost and Found, how Delta climbed from despair to dominance in the post-9-11 era. Just search Delta Book wherever you buy books online. Until next week, thanks for stopping by the Airline Weekly Lounge. I love the name New Leaf. Yeah, it's a good one. Maple Leaf. New Leaf. Turning over a new leaf. <laughs>